Welcome to the Bible Brush Up Podcast and to the 90 Days of Promise series that we are currently going through. Now looking at the book of Joshua and venturing through some of the descriptions of the land allotment, I wanted to look today at another piece of land distribution to the people of Benjamin. And the reason I wanted to point this out is because as I read through this, I was just amazed that there was a nugget of truth that I had never seen before as I read through the scripture. I've been in ministry for over 20 years. I have a PhD in hand, and yet this is something that is pretty basic that I have just overlooked. So I wanted to share it in case anyone else has overlooked it as well. And it is found in Joshua chapter 18. In Joshua chapter 18, they're divvying up the land for Benjamin. And it says right down at the end of the chapter, some of the cities that made up the boundary marker of the location that Benjamin was going to receive. And it says in verse 26 that, that you're going to get Mizpah, Chethera, Moza, Rechem, Irpiel, Terelah, Zela, Haleph, Jebus, and in quotations it says, or in parentheses, that is Jerusalem. Okay, so Jerusalem is going to be a part of Benjamin. Now, when I read that, I thought, wait a minute, that can't be. I've taught for years and years and years that Jerusalem was in Judah, because Jerusalem is in Judah. If you go into the rest of the scripture and you read about Jerusalem, it falls within the territory of Judah. Uh, and once the northern kingdom splits from the southern kingdom, Benjamin's a part of that. They go with the northern kingdom, and Jerusalem is the capital city of the southern kingdom. So it can't be a part of Benjamin. And so I began to look at this and try to find out what in the world's going on here. What seems to be the case is that Benjamin would have originally received Jerusalem. But if you remember back to the end of our last episode, I erroneously said that Jericho was the capital of um, Israel because I was talking too fast, kind of like I am right now. But what I meant to say was Jerusalem, not Jericho. So this is a post-production correction to the previous episode. But Jerusalem was going to be the capital. But at this point, they have not driven out the Jebusites who are living there. And so while Benjamin has been given this land allotment, they have not done the job of driving out the enemies that they were commanded to drive out. So they never really occupy Jerusalem, even though it is on the paperwork and described as their territory, it never actually becomes their territory. Not until King David takes the throne and he leads his armies into Jerusalem and drives out the Jebusites, does it become a, an official inhabited location within Israel? And because King David is from the tribe of Judah, and since Jerusalem becomes the capital and the place of the temple, and it becomes known as the city of David, then it obviously becomes a part of Judah, um, because it is Judah's kings who are going to be ruling on the throne. Now, what's fascinating about this is that the first king of Israel could have driven out the Jebusites and taken this land for uh, Israel, but he does not. And that first king is Saul. And where was Saul from? From Benjamin, of all places. And so what's interesting is you have this description that Jerusalem could have belonged to Benjamin. The whole narrative could have been different. It could have been that Benjamin rose to the ranks of the monarchy and would have had an established king forever and would have reigned. But because of their failure and because of Saul's failure, the throne is diminished and transferred over to King David, and it is Judah who rises and takes up the scepter. Now, all of this, of course, fulfills many of the prophecies already made about Judah, and that's the interesting thing about God's 
um, predictions and prophetic word versus how these things come to pass. Um, real failures bring about God's promised, um, you know, his predictions and his foreknowledge uh, that's been revealed to us. Uh, but it doesn't excuse the person doing the error, just like Judas Iscariot was already foreknown to betray Jesus, but it does not excuse him for that betrayal. Nor does any of the future elements that are coming to pass today excuse us from our sinfulness that might actually be contributing to the fulfillment of those things. And so you're just commanded and expected to do the right thing. In this section of scripture, we also see that it was in Shiloh that they erected the tent of meeting, and it was there that we have an early established prototype of the temple, uh, because the tabernacle is no longer going to be moving around from place to place. It's sort of set up here, and later on they even refer to it as the house of the Lord, and so it's maybe even getting some features that are more permanent uh, as they set it up and as they establish it as the place where God's dwelling is. Uh, Joshua is here, and it's at the place of Shiloh that he makes some of the major decisions because he's continuing to consult with God and to get uh, the word of God delivered to him at this very special sacred location in order to divvy up the land and to make executive decisions for the people of Israel. They don't have a king yet. There are no judges ruling over them. And so it's simply God speaking to his um, spokesperson, which was Moses and is now Joshua. And that all transpires at the place of Shiloh. So Shiloh is going to be significant all the way up until the point where David brings the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem and establishes uh, the presence of God there. A final thing I'll talk about before we quit for the day is cities of refuge. It's another portion of the book of Joshua that is covered in this uh, middle section here. And the cities of refuge are laid out for the priesthood. And they are places where the priests will dwell and they will set up their um, pasture land. But they're also designated as places where people can run to if they have been accused of involuntary manslaughter and they're awaiting a judicial conclusion regarding their case. And what this tells me is, A, God honors life and he wants people to be protected and not just killed out of revenge. And they don't want people to react hastily before all the evidence has been collected and before people can think reasonably and rationally about the case. But it also tells me that the people of Israel can expect in their world to be dealing with a lot of involuntary manslaughter, because there are several cities here designated simply for the task of protecting those who are faced with this. They've accidentally killed somebody. They've dropped something off the roof as an accident, and it breaks over someone's head, and it kills them. Now the family's out to get blood because they're mad that this person killed their family member, even though it was unintentional. And it just strikes me as fascinating and sort of sad at the same time that there are this many cities of refuge scattered around Israel in the different locations. And there are going to be people who need to run to these cities. And sometimes they run uh, when they've killed someone on purpose. Sometimes they run to them when they've killed somebody by accident. Uh, but they're there to protect the person if it was an accident. If they've actually murdered somebody in cold blood, then they will be delivered over for justice. But here's an interesting piece of information that I think can apply to the New Testament and gives us a glimpse of uh, maybe some foreshadowing of Jesus Christ, is one of the things it says about the cities of refuge is that once the high priest dies, the person can leave guiltless. 
You see, before the high priest dies, they have to stay in the city of refuge. If they leave the city of refuge, then those who are seeking revenge could actually execute and get their revenge through murder, um, just to make things even, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Um, but if they stay in the city of refuge as a person who has accidentally killed, then they are protected there. And they cannot leave until the high priest dies. Once the high priest dies, then they can leave the city of refuge and no longer carry the consequence of that sin. Now, why is that a rule? Why does the high priest's death result in their innocence? Well, because the high priest is dying in their stead is how it's looked at. Uh, even though it may be from natural causes, maybe the high priest turns 90 and has a heart attack and dies in his sleep, that death is substitutionary in a sense. And so it reminds us that Jesus Christ, who is our high priest, he has died a substitutionary death that has allowed us to not have to sit bedded down in a city of refuge for our sin or, or purgatory or anything like that, um, but rather our sins have been dealt with in the death of Jesus Christ, our high priest. So take that with you today and walk boldly and confident in the presence of God, knowing that you have access to him through your high priest, Jesus Christ. We'll see you next time on the Bible Brush Up Podcast.